Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Father, we thank you for your Word. Uh, We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the crucifixion and the resurrection. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, and Lord, we thank you for uh, the church, the true church, Lord, uh, those who've been born again. Thank you, Lord, for the spiritual gifts, and Lord, we do thank you for those who are um, submissive to you and obedient and using those spiritual gifts to edify the rest of the body of Christ, and we do lift up this time to you. We ask that you will be honored, that you will be glorified. We ask, Lord, that whatever you desire to speak into our lives, whatever you desire to do in us, through us, we pray, Lord, that you'll have your way. So personally, Lord, I do pray for a fresh filling of your spirit, that you'll equip me to do your work tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we are talking about what should be the church's favorite subject. Jesus. And so we are once again in a branch of theology, if you're new or visiting, uh, that we call, you know, Christology, and I didn't make that up, but it's called Christology, and it's about the person and work of Jesus. And so tonight we are on part 2B, which is on the humanity of Jesus. And so in part one of this series, which is entitled All About Jesus, we talked about the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God. We've shown that in the scriptures. And in part 2A of All About Jesus, we, we focus on the humanity of Jesus and we cover some of those points. And, and one thing I want to share as a reminder is that there is a union, of course, of Jesus's two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And once again, it's called the hypostatic union, where both natures, the human nature and the divine nature, they touch. They are united. They are joined, but they're not confused. They're not mixed. There is no third nature that is formed. And so both natures, they, they, they keep their individual attributes or properties, if you will. But they are in one person, Jesus Christ the son of God. And so Jesus did not unite with a human person, but he united with a human nature. The human nature was added to his divinity. And so once again, as I mentioned in the previous study, and so in Jesus, the the seat of his personality or where his personality comes from is the divine nature. He always existed as God. And so, as review, there are some reasons for what we call the incarnation and Jesus becoming a man at a certain point in history. And so, one reason is to confirm God's promises and to show his mercy to the Gentiles. And something else we covered is that the incarnation reveals the Father. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. 
So if you want to know what the invisible God is like, if you want to know what the Father is like who we cannot see, who, the God who dwells in unapproachable light, the scriptures tell us, then you can see the Father's uh, character, his attributes in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And also a reason for the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man is to become a faithful high priest. And so he entered into the human experience. He knows what it feels like to be a human and to go through various things that we go through. And he did that so he can become a faithful high priest, but also to put away sin, which is an obvious point. We talk about it all the time. But not only to put away sin, but he became a man to destroy the works of the devil. As it tells us in Hebrews 2.14. And then a sixth point that I want to share. And again, this is by way of review from the last study. is to give us an example of a holy life. So if you want to know how we should live, how we should be as humans, look at the life of Jesus. If you want to know how to deal with temptations and, and, and people being against you, enemies rising up against you, look at the life of Christ. If you want to look at how to deal with family members who are not supportive, look at the life of Christ. Because at one point, his siblings did not believe in him. And then point number seven and last point in this review in regards to the reasons for the incarnation is to prepare for the second advent or advent or his second coming. So once again, he, he came the first time to deal with sin. He came as the lamb of God, just like John the Baptist pointed out. Behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He didn't just come to cover them. You see, in the Old Testament, you know, the, the, the animals, those animal sacrifices, it, it just covered sin. It was temporary. They pointed to Jesus. Those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were just IOUs. But, but Jesus came as the Lamb of God, and he totally did away with the sin. In other words, he paid off the IOUs. He dealt with it. So that's what he dealt with the first time. But when he comes back, he's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's going to come as conquering king. And yes, he's going to judge. And so the first coming is to prepare for the second advent or second coming of Jesus. But also in the last study, I've shared this chart. Just to clarify the two natures of Jesus. His human nature and divine nature and the differences between them both. So once again, it's two natures, but one person. And so we see that Jesus is God, or in other words, in his divine nature, he has this infinite knowledge, but Jesus is man and his humanity, finite knowledge and so forth. So you can see um, these different qualities that he has in and these two different natures that touch as man limited to time and space. Jesus is God. You could apply the omni predicates to like he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's all knowing, which means that he's omniscient. He's omnipotent, which means that he is all powerful. That is in the divine nature. 
and in his divine nature, he doesn't change. He has no beginning. He always existed and he never dies. But Jesus is man or in his human nature, he, he does change. You know, as far as growing is concerned, he had to grow like other humans grew, like we're growing. So he grew in age, for example, as a human. He had a beginning as a human, speaking of just his body. And of course, Jesus is man in the body. He died on the cross. And so you see some differences there. And once again, this is reviewed from the last study as well. And Jesus, as we'll see, and we should remember and know, he could operate from either nature. So we want to remember that statement that Jesus could operate from either nature, from his divine nature or human nature. And I think if we remember that, it's going to help us with some complicated texts or some texts, biblical texts is what I'm speaking of, that may confuse us when it comes about Jesus or when it comes to Jesus. And we'll get to that later on in the study. But we'll get to what we call those problem texts about Jesus later on. Uh, But first, I want to touch on reasons to accept Jesus's two natures. And so when we talk about accepting his two natures, it also means to accept uh, the incarnation. The fact that God added a human body and became a man without removing any divinity. So he didn't stop being God when he added the human nature. He didn't change anything because the Bible says God is unchanging, but it just added the human nature. And so to, to accept Jesus' two natures is to accept also the incarnation. And specifically, we're on part two of the fact that Jesus is truly human. And so this view that Jesus has two natures is, first of all, biblical. Okay, so that's the purpose of going over scriptures is is biblical. We we know that he is God. We talked about that in the first study in part one, in other words, of our series of all about Jesus. You know, one simple scripture is John 1, 1. We talked about that. Then Jesus in eight and chapter in John chapter eight, verse 58 claims to be the I am the same name that God the father uses in Exodus, and when he spoke to Moses, we know, of course, he's man. And so the scriptures show that. And so this view, first of all, is biblical. But another reason to accept Jesus's two natures, this is the second reason, by the way, is that it is consistent with major church councils. And so these councils didn't make up anything new. It just confirmed with the early Christians believed in the first place, but because you had controversies that, that came up, these, these, these uh, church leaders got together and made sure that, that things were stated clearly. And so it's just, once again, confirmed what the Christians already believe. You can see that in the scriptures. Once again, that was completed um, you know, by the end of the first century. And you can see that in the writings of the, uh, of the early church fathers, of those who came after the apostles, that, that they already believed Jesus was fully or truly man 
and fully or truly God, both at the same time. And so this view is consistent with major church councils. And and one council, because I mentioned another one in in one of the previous studies, but one of the councils is called the, the Council of Chalcedon. And that began on October 8th in 451 A.D., and so from there, you have what you call, which is called the Chalcedonian Creed. And it's a response to certain heretical views that concerns the nature of Christ. Because once again, you, you have people coming up and they had these doctrines that were off. And we're like, wait a minute. No, let's deal with this. And so the Chalcedonian Creed established the orthodox view of Christ that has two natures, human and divine, that are unified in one person. And I'm not going to read the entire creed, but, but there's a portion in here that I do want to read. And it says, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. So what we talked about earlier. So he has two natures and they both keep their properties. His divine nature keeps its properties as well as the human nature. So nothing is taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. And so it confirms that Jesus wasn't two different people. No, these two natures are in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God, the word calls Jesus, God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't sound anything different from what the scriptures already confirmed. But once again, because you had issues that arose, they had to deal with this. And so that's the second reason uh, to accept the view that Jesus has two natures, divine and uh, human. But a third reason to accept it is that it accounts for the seeming complexity that's present within Christ. For example, there's, there's times where the scriptures suggest that Jesus knew everything. When he was on earth as a man, but then there were times where he, he doesn't know everything. And so just understanding that he has two natures accounts for this seeming complexity. But then point number four, or I should say reason number four, is that it accounts for his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. But eventually, as we read in Matthew, for example, Eventually, like in Matthew 26, 39, he submits to the will of the Father. Lord, if if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering and death. He knew he was going to the cross. Let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but but your will, Father. And so this This view that he has two natures, which again is biblical. It accounts for this struggle that that we've seen, this struggle in which he was crushed figuratively, being crushed figuratively in this garden. But a fifth reason is that it, it, it renders love meaningful and also self sufficient. Which means that in the context of the triune God, because God is is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that means that love always existed. The scriptures say that God is love. 
But within the Trinity, even before people were created, God was already love. There was love there within the Trinity between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so this view of Jesus, that that he existed prior to the incarnation, prior to taking on the, the human flesh, it renders, once again, this love meaningful and self-sufficient. In other words, love isn't something that God needs outside of himself. That, that, if, it was, that if it weren't for humans or something outside of him, that, that God wouldn't have love in him. No, God, he's self-sufficient. This love was already there. It's a, it's a part of who he is. Which means that love was eternally present within the Trinity. And of course, once again, Jesus was a member or he is a member of the Trinity. And so he was loved in eternity. Then becoming a man, he was still loved. The father loves the son. And so the point to take from this is that God's love doesn't need anything external to his nature to act as this object because it was already present within the Trinity. And the fact that Jesus is fully God, fully man helps to explain that. But then point number six is that in God's knowledge, Christ was already slain from the foundation of the world. So even before Adam sinned and even before Eve was deceived, it was already within the plan of God. He already foresaw everything coming. That, that doesn't mean that he made them be disobedient to him just because he knew it. But God already had his counterpunch ready, in other words. And so in eternity, the, you know, Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. And so it had to be played out. That was in the mind of God and eternity. But, but Christ being slain had to be played out in time, which means that God the Son had to become a man in order to die. And, 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 that, and that really speaks to the wisdom of God. Because there's, there's many of us right now, we're going through different struggles and Maybe you've been praying a long time for something and you're wondering how God is going to work it out. If God is going to work out that issue, if God is ever going to answer your prayer. But I come to tell you that just just how God the Father knew from the foundation of the world in eternity that that Christ was slain. God already has, he's already worked out your problem. He already knows how it's going to be worked out. But there is a certain point in your life. There's a a certain point in time in the history of your life that his resolution for you and for your situation is going to fall into place. So just rest in that fact that God has already truly, seriously worked it out. But we must be patient. It's going to fall out in time at a specific time in his plan. And so at this point in the study, I want to move on to addressing the problem text about Jesus. 
So as you spend time in the word or, or maybe you heard Bible studies and you came to certain scriptures that, that maybe the Bible teachers skipped over and you always wondered about them or in your personal time, you jotted down some notes and just wondering how all of this works out. At this time, we want to address these problem texts about Jesus when it comes to his nature, when it comes to his attributes. See, when reading about Jesus, there's some passages that they confuse not only some Christians, but they've even been used by other religions and even cults in order to support their wrong views about Jesus. And so the following are some scriptures that seem to suggest that Jesus had a beginning. And so some of these are what I would call the quote unquote problem text that, that people have that throw people off about Jesus. So, for example, if you read Revelation chapter three, verse 14, it says into the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so, in other words, write to the messenger or pastor of the church of the Laodiceans. Write these things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness. And want to highlight the beginning of the creation of God. That throws some people off. Even some people may use that to, once again, teach their wrong views about Jesus that, oh, see there, he has a beginning. He's not God. And so this, the Greek word behind beginning is arche. And so one meaning of arche is uh, the person or thing that commences, the, the first person or thing in the series, the leader. But another meaning of the Greek word arche is that, is that by which anything begins to be the origin, the active cause. Jesus is the active cause. Arche, that Greek word behind this word beginning, is a reference to who began creation. Creation began with him. In other words, he is the architect. Jesus is the architect who set the blueprint for the foundation of the earth, the arche. He's the beginner of the whole plan of building. And, and so arche, or the beginning here, is translated into English in Revelation 3.14. It carries the meaning of beginner, the first cause or originator of creation. So, in fact, although some people misuse Revelation 3.14, in fact, it just shows that Jesus is creator, which, again, points to his deity, the fact that he's God. But then you have Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And here it says that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn that's the word that trips people up over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth. So that supports Revelation 3.14. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So in other words, he, he created 
uh, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, whether on earth or in the spiritual realm. All things were created through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus, again, attesting that Jesus is God. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. So if some people keep reading past verse 15, they will see that Jesus existed before creation. It says he is before all things. He existed before anything else was made. And in him, all things consist in him. All things, in other words, are held together. And guess what? Even your lives or your life seems to be falling apart. Everything seems to be going wrong, You're stressed out, frustrated, but yet you're still making it as a believer. And if you're still making it, if it seems like, although this is the way you feel, this is the way it seems, but yet you're still making it. But yes, you're still praising God. But yes, you still haven't given up. Oh, that's because the same one who's holding everything together in this universe is holding your life together. But I do want to get back to verse 15, the problem verse. But I wanted to throw that spiritual nugget out there, depending on where you are in your walk, in your life at this point. And so when we look at verse 15, speaking of firstborn, you know, some people take this to mean that Jesus, once again, is first created. But behind that word firstborn is a Greek word pronounced prototokos, and it means existing before or superior. So it's talking about his preeminence over all creation. So in other words, it's saying that Jesus is not the first one created, but it's saying that Jesus is superior in rank over all creation. That makes sense because he's God. But, but don't let the term firstborn fool you. And I just shared why when it came to Jesus, because I shared with prototokos means first or superior in rank, but also firstborn has been used in a similar way with other people in the scriptures. In Psalm 89, verse 27, for example, God calls David, King David, his firstborn which means he's first in rank over the other kings. And then in the scriptures, we know when it comes to Ephraim, we know that according to the scriptures in Genesis chapter 41, that he is the second born son of Joseph. But according to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse nine, God calls Ephraim my firstborn. So again, you see that we're not making this up about Jesus that, Oh, This means first in rank. We're just making that up. No, we're not making it up because in those scriptures about David and Ephraim, firstborn is also referring to them as first in rank, preeminent, superior in rank. That's what that means about Jesus. In fact, if if the writer wanted to show that 
he was just the first created over all creation, another Greek word would have been used, by the way. But then we have another quote unquote unquote problem text in John 3.16. And we know this, many of us can quote this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish or be destroyed, but have everlasting or eternal life. So here, the term, the phrase that throws some people off is only begotten. See, the only begotten, that phrase has a Greek word behind it that's pronounced monogamous. And it means single of its kind or only. So in other words, monogamous or only begotten, what it's really saying is that Jesus is the one of a kind or unique son of God. He had a relationship with God from the beginning because he's part of the Trinity, the triune God. And again, when we talk about God, uh, God, the son or Jesus being called the son of God, it, it just means that Jesus has the same nature or essence. Or if you want to use human terms, the same DNA of whatever makes God the father, God, Jesus has that which, of course, would make him equal to God in his essence and who he is. So don't let that phrase only begotten throw you off. Don't let any false teacher come knock on your door and tell you that, see there, Jesus is the biological son of God. It's not what the scriptures teach. But then there are some scriptures that seem to suggest that Jesus is less than God. For example, John 14, 28, it says, you have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the father for my father is greater than I. Whenever you talk about Jesus, as one Bible scholar put it, you always talk about one who and two what's. One Jesus, but two natures. Divine nature, human nature. Which nature is Jesus speaking from? Speaking from his humanity. Speaking from his human nature. And matter of fact, there's, there's another Greek word. I'm going to share with you that's behind greater than here. See, John used the Greek word mitzon. And mitzon, that Greek word, it means greater in position. I stress the word position because it's not talking about better in nature. The father is not better in nature. He's not better in his essence than Jesus is. Jesus is equal to the father in his nature, in his essence, but in position, Jesus decided to, and we talked about this in Philippians chapter 2 in the last study, Jesus decided to take upon a human nature and become a bondservant, to become a servant. Bible says that 
didn't consider it robbery or something to be grasped to grasped onto to be equal with God. But no, he humbled himself. He took a submissive role. So here is Jesus in his humanity, in his position, taking on a submissive role, especially as he, fully human, a full human, a true human. So that Greek word might song means greater in position. So remember, we talked about son of God in the Trinity. Matter of fact, you see different functions. So in his position, in his humanity, the father is greater than Jesus, but not in his essence. That's why it's important to read all of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, as Pastor Jim always says. However, I'll say this about Jesus in regard to the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, it shows that Jesus is better than the angels in both position and in his nature. That's the difference. In John chapter 20, verse 17, another quote-unquote problem text. Scripture that seemed to suggest that Jesus is less than the Father. See, Jesus said to her, speaking of Mary Magdalene, after revealing himself to her after the resurrection, he told her, he said, do not cling to me, which means that she was already grabbing on to him. She was already holding on to him. So he goes, hey, stop holding on to me. Stop. Don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But, but go to my brethren. Say to them, I'm ascending. I'm going up to my father and to your father and to my God. And you're God. So first of all, to address Mary Magdalene, she, she didn't need to cling to Jesus so tightly in a physical way because, look, I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm going to send the promise of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have an even closer relationship with me. So you don't have to hold on to me this way, physically. I'm going back to the Father, send the Holy Spirit, relationally, be closer than ever. We have Christ in us as believers through the Holy Spirit. So we have a personal relationship with him. So Mary, you don't, you don't have to cling to me. But then here, in that second part, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God, your God. Again, Jesus is speaking from his position, not from his nature. He's not less than the father in nature. You're calling him God. He's speaking from his human nature. But then you also see that he distinguished his relationship to the father from the believer's relationship to the father. He could have just said, our father, I'm ascending to our father, to our God. But no, there's a difference to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He's not referencing different spiritual father. He's not referencing a, a, a different God. But here what you sin is that Jesus has a, a different relationship with the father than we do. Jesus always had a relationship with the father, being the son of God, being the, the second person in the Trinity. 
unique relationship, the only begotten, the unique son of God, monogamous. But us as humans, like Mary Magdalene, the disciples, the apostles, we have to be born again. We have to be born into the family of God. Whereas Jesus always was, always will be God. So you see that difference there. And so anybody who wants to become a child of God, you become a child of God through faith in Christ, according to John chapter 1, verse 12. Not not born by the will of man, but born of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, it says, Now, when all things are made subject to him, subject to the Father, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God, speaking of the Father, will be all in all or utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. And so this is looking towards the future. And so in this verse, the context, in context of what's going to happen in the future, what would happen if you read um, the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15, you, you see, you know, still speaking future, you see that what's being completed is uh, the resurrection, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. Um, you know, after that 1,000 years, the, the devil, he's going to be released from his prison, the bottomless pit, and then he's going to deceive the world and so forth. He's going to be defeated by Christ. He's going to be tossed into that lake of fire. And then that last enemy, death, is going to be destroyed. Another thing I see happening is that um, great white throne judgment is going to be completed as well. And then, of course, we see death is destroyed. We see that in Revelation chapter 20. And so assuming that all of that happened, and again, this is still future, it says now all, then that's when all things, where, where Jesus is going to turn over everything to the Father. When all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him. The Son in his position, in his function, not in his essence, has always been subject to the Father. So once again, we can see the father as planner. We can see Jesus, the son of God, as the accomplisher. And we can see the Holy Spirit as the applier. Different functions, same essence. And and we see this even in humanity. We see this with the president and vice president, for example. Different roles. One has more... um, you know, a bigger role than the other, but both of them are human in their essence. You see this in, in a household, husband and wife, between men and women. They're both, they both have the same essence, the same nature. They're both human. The woman is no, no less human than the man is. But according to the word of God, you see that there's some functional order. See that in the Godhead. Jesus submits to the father. But then there's some quote unquote problem text that uh, seem to show that there's some type of lack in Jesus. For example, in Luke 2:52, it says in Jesus increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. See there, Jesus was lacking these things. Remember, you, you're talking about 
one who and two what's. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about his human nature here. And so Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, not in his divinity, but in his humanity. And we have another scripture. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 17, it says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Someone will take this. See, Jesus is not God. He's not good. Some people just take this and run with it. But Jesus is not claiming that he himself is not good. But Jesus threw this statement out there to cause this young man to think about what he really said and to really think about who the person of Jesus is. Because the scriptures clearly say that Jesus is good. In fact, Jesus claimed him. He said he was good himself. Want some evidence? Remember, Jesus didn't say he was any kind of shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. But he, was, he threw this out there to cause this rich young ruler to think about what he was saying, what the implications of what he's saying. You, you're calling me good. There's only one good, God. So if you really think I'm good, you're calling me God. But, but the statement that no one is good is, is true of the rest of us, the, the rest of mankind, because we have a sin nature. You know, people, you know, throw out these statements, oh, oh they're such a good person. Nobody is good in their nature, for we all sin. We fall short of the glory of God. In fact, our hearts are evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells that. That our heart's deceitful, desperately wicked. But God loves us anyway, knowing that about us. And so I think if a person misses that fact that no one is good, that no one is righteous, if they miss that, then they'll miss out on the gift of salvation. Because they will, they, they will, if they miss the fact that, that, that we're sinners in need of a Savior, then they'll never seek the Savior. So we can't miss this about us, that no one is good, that, that no one is righteous. We all have gone astray like sheep, the Scriptures tell us in Isaiah chapter 53. That's why we need a savior. Thank God for the Messiah. Thank God for Christ Jesus. Then we have Matthew chapter 28, verse, eight, verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, spoke to the 11 disciples. This is after, of course, the resurrection. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so again, given to me is most likely Jesus speaking from his human nature, not his divine nature. So remember Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, he lowered himself. He became a servant. He lowered himself. In other words, he abased himself. God the Father exalted him, restored him back to the position he had from eternity. So this is most likely Jesus speaking from his human nature. But there's also a principle there for us because it's a lot of people who want to exalt themselves. But, but Jesus says, hey, the way up is down. 
You want to go up? You want to be exalted? Then humble yourself. You let God lift you up. You don't do that yourself. That's pride. Then we have Mark 13, 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Jesus, one who, two what's, which what is speaking, the human nature. Because there's other scriptures that, that they teach, and, and I shared this in one of the last studies, that Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him anything about man because he already knew what was in man. But here, you see the limitation of his humanity. While, while he's speaking on the Mount of Olives about the end time events and the second coming, so in his humanity, and his human nature, at that point, he didn't know the timing of his second coming. Why? Because like Philippians chapter 2 told us, he willingly took on the limitations of humanity in order to go through the entire human experience. So he can become a faithful high priest. And so he temporarily, he temporarily and willingly set aside some of his divine prerogatives. He gave up the independent use of them and he used his omniscience as the father allowed him to. Because he decided to submit to the father, he took upon that form of a servant. But then here's, here's one more problem text. There's some cults, religions. Of, who was Jesus praying to? Was he, was he praying to himself? John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. If they read the scriptures, it tells you who he's praying to. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, right there. We can pause there. You can see who he's praying to. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So why would Jesus direct his prayers to the father? Well, that's because first of all, he chose to submit to the fire father. He chose to do that. He humbled himself. And then the scriptures tell us that because he was human, he decided to take upon humanity that for a little while he became a little lower than the angels in his humanity. And so, again, he was going through the experience of humans. He was depending on the father. He was setting a good example for us. But, but, but him, Jesus, communicating with the father shouldn't be weird because the father, son, Holy Spirit They've been in fellowship and in communication for all eternity. So it was continuing on earth. The only difference was he took upon human body. But Jesus Christ is God of very God, truly God, truly man. But since this study is mostly focused on Jesus, Jesus's humanity or the humanity of Jesus, We have to ask the question, what is the importance of him coming in the flesh? Why are we emphasizing this in the last study in part 2A and tonight in part 2B? And there is an importance to it because it makes him the perfect mediator, the go-between between both God and man. It qualifies him as the perfect one to go between humanity and God the Father. 
so that what could happen? So that he can restore peace. There's a word in the Bible that talks about reconciliation. Reconciliation needed to take place. We were at odds with God because of our sin, separated from God because of our sin. But we need a mediator to fix that. But another reason his coming in the flesh, the incarnation is important is because it makes him eligible to redeem humanity. You see, God the Son or God had to become a man in order to qualify to redeem humans. And to redeem just means to pay a price, to pay a price to recover from the power of another, to ransom, to buy off. In other words, to pay a ransom and set slaves free from the bondage of sin. He had to become a man to set us free from sin. Why? Because the Bible says that with the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission without the shedding of blood. But can't they just keep sacrificing animals? But hold on. Animals are not. They're not God. See, God is. Jesus is perfect because he's God. So you needed someone perfect first and foremost. But then you run into an issue because God, because Jesus in, in his divine nature can't die. And so he needed to take upon humanity a body that could die. And so he was perfect in his divinity perfect in his humanity, qualified to now become the redeemer. And you, and you know what else? Because, be, because man lost the garden, Adam, right? The first Adam lost the garden because man lost the garden, not a fox, not a bull. They, they didn't lose the garden. Man, human, mankind lost the garden. Therefore, a man had to reestablish the garden, a way back to God, in other words, a way back to paradise. Man messed it up. The first man messed up. And so the last Adam, the second Adam, had to come back and fix what the first man messed up. And so you call Jesus what we call the kinsman redeemer. He is the one who can who's related to human beings in his humanity. And so therefore he can qualify in his humanity to fix what man lost. And so that's why it's important that God would become a man, would take upon humanity. And so the sacrifice must represent man. So because once again, man is the one who sinned, but then the sacrifice also must be God since the sacrifice must be eternal and perfectly righteous. And so you have that joined in one person, which makes Jesus qualified to redeem humanity. You see, sins committed against a sinless and holy God requires an equally sinless and holy sacrifice. And only Jesus could meet that requirement. You see, Jesus, if he were not human, he couldn't redeem humanity. But once again, he fulfills this requirement to be the redeemer of man, both as God and man. But then there's, a, there's another reason that shows the importance of Jesus coming in the flesh. And that's because 
It makes him eligible to, to judge humanity. Makes him eligible to judge humanity. And you can even turn to John chapter 5, verse 22. You can see what the scripture says about Jesus being judged. In John chapter 5, 22, he says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Then skipping to verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also. Why? Because he is the son of man. And so because Jesus fully God and fully man, he is eligible to judge humanity. But, but a, a fourth reason it's important to, to know that Jesus and, and had come in the flesh and, and the fact that he did come in the flesh is that he revealed God the Father to us. He's the very character of God in human form. Jesus is the ultimate of God's revelation. Mentioned it earlier. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And so we have at least four reasons there of why it's, it's important that Jesus came in the flesh. Of why we are touching on this topic tonight. And, and so if you kind of make a summary of everything we talked about, all the scriptures we talked about, you get some basic information that we should all know and believe about Jesus Christ. And so first of all, you should know by now that he always existed as God, that he's the Christ or Messiah, which means anointed one, that, that he was born to a virgin in Bethlehem, that he's a Jew that he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and King David, according to his humanity. You should know from the scriptures that, that, that he was raised in Nazareth, that he had brothers and sisters, that he was called rabbi or teacher. The scriptures tell us that he was a carpenter, that he began his earthly ministry at about 30 years of age. Luke 3.23, scriptures tell us that he performed miracles and healings. Again, these are basic things we should know about Jesus, that, that he also was a perfect human, that his public ministry on earth lasted for about three and a half years. Scriptures tell us that he was crucified, that he rose from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15.4 that he ascended back to heaven 40 days after his resurrection, Acts chapter 1, that he's right now at the right hand of the Father. And based on the scriptures and all of this we know about Jesus, you should know that he's coming back for his church in an event called the rapture. And there's absolutely zero things that need to take place for the rapture to take place. For the rapture to happen, it can happen at any moment. But the question is, are you ready for this Jesus, this biblical Jesus to come back? But then as a final thought, I want you to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. We'll end with this verse as Matt takes the stage. 
or with these verses, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. In other words, uh, Simon, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I ask that question to you, who do you say that Jesus is? It doesn't matter what politicians say about Jesus, who he is. It doesn't matter what some religion or cult say that Jesus is. Do you know Jesus for yourself? Have you received him as he described himself? Have you received the same Jesus that God revealed him to be in the Holy Bible, in the scriptures that we have? Or, or is Jesus the, the figment of your imagination, the way that you want him to be? Oh, I love the loving Jesus, the one who's going to love me, even though I live any type of lifestyle, who's not going to, quote unquote, judge me. I love that type of Jesus. And yes, Jesus loves. He, he's God. He, he loves. But is that all that it says about Jesus? Because if you read the scriptures, he is also a, a, a God of judgment. He will judge one day. So have you received him as he described himself? Have you received him as he's revealed in his word? Who do you say that he is? What they say on Facebook. What they say on some fake YouTube theology. Somebody always thinks they have some secret knowledge and some people bite on it and send us emails. Did you know, like, did you know you can go back to the Bible and find that out? It's pretty clear. So know Jesus for yourself. Know him, not just intellectually. Know all this stuff, a lot of intellectual knowledge. Don't just know him intellectually who he is, but know him by experience. In other words, know him in a personal relationship. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you tonight to repent and put your faith in Jesus. In the Jesus of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, what you are to us. Thank you for revealing who Jesus is to us. Help us to acknowledge this Jesus, to focus on a relationship with this Jesus, the biblical Christ. There's someone, Lord, who doesn't have a personal relationship with you through Jesus. I pray that you remove the blinders and draw them to Christ, that they too will spend eternity in heaven. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your people, Lord. Watch over us as we leave this place, but not your presence, and use us according to your will this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.